Well, here's a couple of questions. One on something I said about anxiety being slavery to the devil. Is that helpful to think it that way? And another one is, how does the forgiveness of sins work? Are we damned sinners until we come to the absolution in church? Two great questions. Uh, thanks for sending them. Thanks for letting me think theologically with you. Here, here we go. Luke asks, Dear Pastor Wolfmuller, I've been listening to your videos and podcasts for a long time, and I find your theological content very helpful and useful for presenting the clarity of the doctrine of the Bible. Thank you, Luke. That's nice. Thanks for doing it in such a kind, gentle, loving, and serious and clear way. Very kind. Uh, my question for you isn't so much for me as it is for someone I know. It's been brought to my attention several months ago by someone, uh, and I really hadn't thought of this. I'm not sure if I really gave an adequate answer to the question. I was wondering if you could help me understand our stance better. When we receive the forgiveness of sins by the pastor through God's word and absolution, or by Christ's body and blood in the Holy Supper, do we believe that we are simply being reminded of the forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future, won on the cross by Christ, or are we being forgiven right then and there with forgiveness that we don't otherwise have? In other words, every time we sin, do we believe that we lose God's forgiveness until we repent and receive it in the reading and preaching of God's word, confession and absolution, and in the Holy Supper? Is the forgiveness of sins that Christ won on the cross, Christ giving us the opportunity to repent and be forgiven anew every time we sin? I believe he forgives us anew every time we repent of our sin in the means of grace. Thanks so much for all that you do. God's peace be with you. This is a great question for us to reflect on. Um, what this means when we hear, I forgive you all your sins, or what it means when Jesus gives us his body and blood and says, pour it out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Does that mean that, again, like Luke mentions in the question, every time we sin, we're out of God's grace and mercy and the absolution brings us in, or, which is kind of a frightful um, way to think about it, or does it mean that the absolution isn't really the absolution or the promise of forgiveness isn't really the promise of forgiveness. It's just a reminder. It's like, um, be like a husband saying to his wife, uh, I marry you every day. It's a, wait a minute. We got married a long time ago, but here's maybe here's the, and this might be helpful. The key difference is that we don't say I was married, but I am married so that the gift of baptism, the gift of the absolution, puts us into the, to the state or to the status or under the, I heard my old pastor said it like this, puts us under the umbrella of the Lord's forgiveness. But that doesn't take away the, the gift of the absolution. The absolution is a true absolution. It is a true forgiveness. It's a true declaration of God's um, forgetting our sin, putting away our sin, uh, pouring out the anger that our sin deserves on his son. But it's brought to us over and over and over again. What if we, what if we thought of it like this? A lot of people um, ponder over how time works in heaven. And every time that topic comes up, I sort of back away slowly from the conversation because I don't, I don't know how to think about it. I don't know what it means. But 
but maybe this will be helpful. I, I might just just dip my toe in this kind of thinking. The Bible tells us that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he goes there with his own blood. This is really the whole thrust of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus appears before the throne of God in heaven, in the temple, not made with hands, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. And he presents there, in the heavenly throne room, the evidence for our righteousness, the evidence for our redemption, which is his suffering and death. So he presents his blood before the Father, and the Father declares us to be forgiven. It's the, it's the once-for-all declaration of the righteousness of the sinner before the throne of God. And this declaration echoes through time and space in the preaching of the gospel, in the absolution, in baptism, in the supper, so that if you want to think of it this way, every time you hear the absolution, you are hearing an echo of that heavenly declaration. It's not a reminder. It is a true forgiveness, but it's based 100% on the work that Christ has done on the cross. So here's the picture. And Carrie always, whenever I preach John 20, whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. And I don't preach this picture. Carrie is on my case. She says, hey, use the picture of the judge and the bailiff. If you can imagine that you're in a jail, and or I suppose if you're in jail, you don't have to imagine. But imagine for the rest of you that you're in jail and your case is being heard over in the courthouse. You're not even there. And the judge declares you innocent and free. So, so you're free. But the problem is you're still over there in jail. You're still locked up. So the bailiff who hears the verdict of the judge walks across the street. He's got the keys from the judge. He's got the verdict. And he opens the door to your cell and says, you're innocent. Now you're sitting in the cell and you're like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not the judge. You're just the bailiff. You can't, you don't have the authority to set me free. Well, no, of course he doesn't. But he, he heard what the judge said. And now he comes with that word to give it to you. This is what the, what the Lord has put in place in the absolution. So that the word that you're hearing is the eternal verdict won by the death of Jesus. It's the word that Jesus has established in the supper with his blood. I mean, it, it, isn't it amazing that the evidence that's presented in heaven is now brought down to earth so that the blood which declares us to be holy and innocent is now brought to you to declare you to be holy and innocent. And the same thing in baptism, same thing in the preaching. So, so it's not like we fall away and then are brought back by the absolution every single time. We, we live under the, um, under the covering of the Lord's wings. We live in his shadow of his wings. We live in his comfort and the confidence and assurance of the salvation that he's won for us. But what keeps us there and rejoicing in that truth is over and over we get to hear those same words again, that our sins are forgiven. We, we were just looking at I was just, I say we, I was just looking at Isaiah 12 this morning, working on the Around the Word devotions. By the way, if you don't subscribe to the Around the Word devotions, you can go to whatdoesthismean.com and look at the devotion button and, and get these in your email every week. I was just writing the Around the Word devotion for 
uh, next week, a couple weeks from now, on Isaiah 12, where Isaiah teaches us to sing, Though you were angry with me, your anger has been turned away, and you comfort me. Oh, what a song. So the Lord, the Lord Jesus, by his death on the cross, has turned God's anger away, and now he comforts us. And this is the comfort, the constant comfort that we receive from him, the forgiveness of sin. God be praised. And thank you, Luke, for the question. Hope that's helpful. S asks, hey, Pastor Wolfmiller, thanks for, so much for your interview with Dr. Kleinick a few months ago on the blessings of COVID. I found it encouraging, but it also brought up a question that has now sort of evolved into an idea that is quite troubling for me as a confessional Lutheran and someone diagnosed with and being treated for anxiety disorder. It came from section six in the conversation about illusions or idols being exposed. The third category underneath this heading in our sense of, is our sense of physical security. You refer to Hebrews 2 and Paul, who says that essentially anxiety is bondage to the devil. Could you imagine how alarming and confusing it could be for me to hear this? And I wonder if you could clarify. COVID has not helped me with my battle against anxiety in the least. And uh, and add the lack of ability to take the Lord's Supper regularly, be around my fellow believers. I reached some epic levels of dealing with my anxiety this past couple of years. I don't know how it helps now to add the teaching that I'm now in bondage to the devil via fear of death could really use some clarification. Didn't Lutheran suffer, himself suffer from bouts of depression, couldn't get out of bed? I always found that to be a comfort to me in my own worst days. Uh, again, I really appreciate your teaching and materials. Wanted to reach out. I'm distressed over this particular part of the interview. God continues to bless my husband and I immensely through your ministries. I thank you for your time in reading this piece. S, who says, please don't use my name. Thank you for the opportunity to think about this and to clarify it. Uh, the key text, I think, for our consideration is Hebrews 2, 14, which talks about how Jesus partakes of flesh and blood, like we have flesh and blood. And it says that so that through his death, he might destroy him who has the power of death and set all those free who have been held in bondage by the fear of death. So that's our that's our baseline. Now let's recognize that all of us by nature are afraid to die. So it's not just those with anxiety or depression who are afraid to die, but everybody is Christian, non-Christian. The fear of death is part of the thing that, that motivates us. So we all have that fear of death. But what this particular passage is doing is reminding us that that fear of death is not neutral. That that fear of dying gives an angle for the devil to come and tempt us. And it, we see it most clearly probably in the old martyrdom stories where the, the pro-council would drag some Christian up in front of them and say, look, you need to deny Christ or I'm going to kill you. And they would be afraid of being killed. And so they would deny Christ. That's, that's the way that it works. The devil can, can put our life in the balance and give us a choice, your life or your faith. Now, it's not always so clear. Uh, in fact, in writing to the Hebrews, Paul says, you have not yet even suffered unto to blood. Is that how he says it? You haven't, 
you haven't suffered with your blood. So the persecution for those in the church there hadn't gotten so bad that it was either their life or their faith. But, but this is the idea. This is why one of the reasons why uh, in Revelation 12, it talks about how we overcome the devil with the, with the word and the blood, and we don't love our lives unto death. So that not being afraid to die, to know that our life is in the Lord's hands, that to pass from this life is to pass into eternal life, that for the Christian to live as Christ, to die as gain, that death is not to be feared any more than sleep, that we fall asleep in Christ, that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, and that we, when we close our eyes to sleep the sleep of death, we open them to see the face of Jesus, to be comforted in, in this, and even more to know that, that even as the Lord has appointed it for, for man once to die and then to be judged, that all who are in Christ we have already been judged. This is how Jesus says it in John chapter 5. There is no judgment for the children. In fact, that, i got to read that verse to you because this is this verse that you, you could hardly believe unless the Lord said it, unless it was written down right here. I, every time I read it, it kind of takes my breath away. Um, it's in John chapter 5. And he's talking about judgment. I'll look at verse, let's start in, well, let's do verse 24. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's by this promise that the Lord begins to take away from us this fear of death. Now, it's a constant work that he's doing, but this is a work that he's doing over and over as we hear the gospel, as we study his word, as we suffer. It's probably one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit, uh, dear friend, in the midst of your anxiety, to begin to cultivate this lack of fear of death. And so the Lord is bringing that about in each one of us. And so um, so we can repent of our anxiety and repent of our depression and rejoice in the Lord's forgiveness and that he's, he's working this in us. Now, I'd like to suggest that, because the Lord has a lot to say about worry and anxiety, it's, it's quite something. Uh, the Lord knows that this is going to be the case for all of us. And that for some of us, it's going to get stuck, like a splinter that gets stuck pretty deep in the heart and the mind. And when, it, when the splinter gets stuck pretty deep, then, then the mental health experts come in and, and give a diagnosis. That's, that's fine. It's great. And there could be some a medicine to help and some food and some, some diet and some lifestyle things that can, that can help ease that. Uh, even some uh, techniques for for meditation and so forth, that's, that's fine. That's fine. But we, we want to especially turn to the Lord's word. And there's a couple of verses. Paul says in Philippians, uh, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And that's right after he says, um, be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. So that 
so that if we could, and, and the other verses at the end of First Peter where he says, cast your anxieties on him for he cares for you. So we, we begin with this baseline that the Lord cares for us, but Paul has some specific instructions for our anxiety. And, and here's, how, here's how I'd like you to think about it for, for all of us who, who, who have these anxieties. They, they come along like a kind of a gut punch or a, like an electric shock in the mind. And this thing that you're supposed to be worried about kind of sneaks up on you and makes you sick to the stomach. If you could think of those moments, those anxiety attacks, as reminders from God the Holy Spirit of this verse in Philippians, that we are supposed to pray and give thanks. I always, whenever I memorize that verse, I memorize it without the thanksgiving. Uh, Be anxious for nothing but in everything through prayer and supplication. Make your request be known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And so, so I... I, I just, for whatever reason, I skipped over the Thanksgiving thing, but the Thanksgiving might be the most important part. So that we can receive those anxieties as reminders from the Holy Spirit to pray. Here, here's something that I'm anxious about. So Lord, I'm anxious about this. And I thank you for hearing my prayers. And I thank you for giving me this life in which I can face these troubles with you and your support. So that our anxieties are like a... Um, uh, an inbred, not inbred, uh, uh, an innate, ah, I don't know the word. It's like a, you, you know how when you set a reminder on your phone that you got to take out the trash or whatever? The, it's like an internal alarm to pray. So that anxiety means that the Lord is calling me to prayer. And especially the Lord is calling me to thanksgiving. On the flip side of anxiety is depression. And here's the suggestion I have for thinking about that. Instead of saying I've been diagnosed with depression, what if we said I'm afflicted with melancholy? Now, that's a cool thing because, number one, being afflicted with melancholy just sounds cool. It's like a term of art. <laughs> diagnosed with depression. You know, depression, that's like the bump in the road. The highway is has a depression in it. Look, melancholy. And then when I think of being afflicted with melancholy, that puts me in connection with everybody in the history of the world who's done something cool. I mean, there's not a single person who was helpful to previous generations or to to the generations that came after them who wasn't afflicted with melancholy. As you write about this with Luther, who was afflicted with melancholy. And C.F.W. Walter, the president of Missouri Synod, first president, he was afflicted with melancholy. And all the great writers, they were afflicted with melancholy. In fact, the old Christians called this the dark night of the soul. And it helps us to see the light. And it helps us to be sensitive to the people suffering around us. And it it attunes us to the, to the dark hues that are part of this creation. And so uh, if we change that language, I think that changes a lot of the way we think about it as well. So I would commend that to you. And then we turn to the Psalms and we see like Psalm, what's this, Psalm 42, why so downcast within me, hope in God, to recognize that in our depression or in our melancholy, in the dark hours, the devil is tempting us away from hope. But remembering then also Romans 5, that the Lord, we rejoice in suffering knowing that the Lord uses our suffering to produce patience and that patience produces character and that character produces hope. So that our suffering, rather than destroying our hope, is in fact the, the garden of hope. It's how the Lord cultivates that hope in us. 
So I hope, I hope this is a helpful clarification. Uh, let me know. And if you're listening and you have thoughts on this, wolfmuller.co slash contact is the way to send your thoughts as well. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for being part of the fun. Wolfmuller.co slash contact to send in your questions. Wolfmuller.co slash Wednesday to sign up for Wednesday whatnot. Wolfmuller.co for all the other stuff. That's probably all you need to know. Thanks for your support, by the way. For your prayers. God be praised. Talk to you soon.